Okay, if you would turn with me to the book of Exodus and chapter 20 and verse 14. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Uh, We are continuing to work our way through the book of Exodus and particularly in these days through the Ten Commandments. And this morning we come to the seventh commandment. It's only five words in English. It's only two words in Hebrew. Uh, But it is God's word to us. God's word for our good this morning. The verse reads, You shall not commit adultery. Oh, come on. How outdated can you get? Aren't we past these old-fashioned ideas? Aren't we more civilized now? Understanding that what people do in their bedrooms is their own business. I can understand the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's about keeping people from harm. But the seventh commandment just seems like God is trying to to legislate our private lives. Friends, there is no trying to it. God is the lawgiver for every part of our lives. And He is the one before whom we will give an account for every part of our lives. He is loving. He is wise. He is good. And when He speaks about how we should order our lives, we would do well to listen. Whatever you might would say belongs to your private life It is not private to Him. Uh, He sees all. He knows all. And He speaks to you for your good. Uh, This command is a call to sexual purity. And if we are wise and we want to walk the path of blessing, we will strive to maintain sexual purity. Now, it is very true that we live in a time when temptations to sexual immorality are everywhere. Uh, Pornography has found its way into every corner of our culture. You can't even open a newspaper or a website without seeing an ad with someone in their underwear. You drive down I-95 and you see the provocative billboards for the various adult clubs. You try and check out at the grocery store. And the magazines are there that greet you with scantily clad models and provocative headlines. Certainly television and movies seem to be obsessed with human sexuality. Uh, Today's form of comedy is simply to make a reference to something sexual and then people laugh. It's kind of absurd, honestly. Advertisers have learned that sex sells. And I read recently that one-eighth of the internet is now devoted to pornography, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, The latest fashions that catch on around us are often immodest. 
Years ago, someone wanting to indulge their lust would have had to bear the embarrassment of buying an explicit magazine or a video. But today, even the most extreme forms of pornography can be accessed in seconds with smartphones. On top of all this, maturity and self-control are now being looked down upon in our society. Uh, Young people are just expected to give in to lust. Uh, They're told to follow their hearts, but that often translates into following their flesh. Uh, The latest music, movies, television shows make sexual immorality among teens and young adults look normal. As though being pure, being abstinent is strange, weird. Many in our day would even say unhealthy. This is the culture we live in, a a culture that has been turned topsy-turvy, upside down on this issue, a culture that has become twisted. It is a culture of temptation. We're tempted to say it's the worst that it's ever been. And certainly technology has brought new challenges, but the truth is that men and women are sinners, and wherever sinners are, Sin is there uh, wherever sinners cluster together. Cultures of sin emerge. Now, that's why cities are often bastions of, of immorality. I want to read for you a quote from one man about his city. Here's what he said about his city. He said, Was ever sodomy so common in a Christian nation? Or so notoriously and frequently committed? is by many palpable evidences it appears to be in about this city. Is it not a wonder the patience of God hath not consumed us in His wrath before this time? Was ever swearing, blasphemy, whoring, drunkenness, gluttony, self-love, and covetousness at such a height as at this time here? I think we often think that way. It's never been this bad before. There have never been Christians who have had to experience such trials and temptations as we do in this society. But that was written by Benjamin Keach about London in 1701. Every generation tends to think it's the worst. Yet historians tell us that the sexual immorality of the Roman culture of the first century, Bible times, was perhaps much worse than in our own day. So we are not a special case. The seventh commandment is as much for us as it is for all mankind in every generation. And God has given to us this commandment for our good and we do well to pay attention to it. So five questions, the same five questions we've been using to unpack many of these commandments. Number one, what is God setting apart for honor? In the seventh commandment. Uh, In every commandment God is revealing something that he values. Something that we are to value. Something that is to be esteemed in our eyes. What is being set apart for esteem here? And the answer is marriage. Marriage. You see this is why adultery is a sin. This is why of all the sexual sins God could have highlighted, adultery is the one put on prime display in this commandment. 
it drives the point home most clearly. Marriage is to be a special bond, a glorious, wonderful institution, and adultery violates that institution. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. It is because marriage is to be held in honor that the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It is because marriage is to be held in honor that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Whatever our culture tells you, whatever you've seen in the lives of others, whatever you may have even experienced yourself, don't lose this. Marriage is an honorable, valuable, esteemable institution. Marriage is to be held high in our eyes. Marriage is to be seen as precious, special, worthy of our regard. You remember that very first marriage? There was no helper fit for Adam found within the animal kingdom. Uh, Genesis 2, 21-22, God puts Adam in a deep sleep, removes one of his ribs, creates the woman from that rib. Uh, Matthew Henry says, Eve was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. And loved Eve certainly was. Uh, One of the happiest moments in my life was that moment when the sanctuary doors of Altima Hall Baptist Church swung open and there was Crystal soon to be my wife in that awesome dress and she's smiling and she's beginning to to walk down the aisle to our new life together. Uh, Here in Genesis 2, after Eve has been created, Adam is awoken and Eve is brought to him and that same just giddiness is within him And, and as he beholds his bride for the first time, he excitedly exclaims and it is, it's prose, it's poet, it's not prose, it's poetry, it's song, right? Adam sings out, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's filled with joy because of Eve. He loved her from the very moment he laid eyes on her because she was a gift to him from God. By the way, I think that's worth thinking about. That Adam receives Eve with joy even though he had not even yet gotten to know her personality. He had not yet had a single conversation with her. His love for her was not based on anything in her. His love for his wife was based on the fact that God had given her to him in a covenant relationship. And so also, if you're in this room and you're married this morning, it is God who in His providence has brought you and your spouse together And you are to receive your spouse as a gift from God. And you are to love your spouse, not because of anything intrinsic in your spouse, but because of the one who gave your spouse to you and the covenant bond that you share. The world says we should love someone based on their personality or their looks or their attitude. But what happens when looks begin to fade? What happens when a tragedy 
causes your spouse's personality to radically change. If your love is based on those things, it will be easy for you to fall out of love with your spouse. But these things are not to be the foundation of your love. We are to love our spouses the way Christ loved us. Christ does not love us because of how beautiful we are. We are sinners. Christ loves us because we are a gift to Him from the Father. His commitment to us expresses His love for His Father. He loves us for His Father's sake. Husbands, wives, love your spouse for God's sake. You are a gift of love from Him to your spouse. And your spouse is a gift of God's love to you. Jesus teaches in the Gospels that the very first marriage was paradigmatic for all future marriages. It set the paradigm. Adam and Eve's marriage set the paradigm for what all future marriages are to be. You and I don't get to define this thing called marriage. God does. The marriage bed serves marriage in its purposes. Uh, Marriage is to be the most intimate partnership. Your your spouse should be your closest and your best friend. The marriage bed brings husband and wife together in an intimacy that is theirs and theirs alone. Uh, The marriage bed gives husband and wife a special and unique intimacy. The marriage bed gives husband and wife a special and unique intimacy. We don't talk with others about what happens in the marriage bed. I hope you don't. Because it's a sacred space. It's a special place. It's a a place emblematic of the special bond between husband and wife. Uh, It's a place where as husband and wife grow together, they, they learn to put the needs of one another before themselves. It's a symbol of their bond, their unique friendship. The marriage bed also serves the purpose of procreation. It serves the purpose of procreation. Not every marriage will result in children. But marriage is the institution in which children were meant to be conceived, born, and raised. Uh, Children are gifts from God as the fruit of the joyful union of a man and his wife. Also, the marriage bed serves the marriage by being a place where we see the higher meaning of marriage, how it points to Christ and His church. The marriage bed serves the higher meaning of marriage. God is not against sexual intimacy. He's against perversions of sexual intimacy. God is not against sex. It was His idea. He created it. There's a whole book in the Bible that celebrates the relationship of Christ and His church through the pictures of intimacy and particularly sexual intimacy. The pleasure experienced in marital intimacy is meant to be a foretaste. It's a small foretaste, but it's a foretaste of heaven itself. In heaven, we will live forever in the marriage bond with Christ himself. In heaven, we will experience in our relationship with Christ a joy far higher than sexual intimacy. Heaven will be a world of delights. But sexual intimacy on earth is meant to be a 
picture of that for us. Because it is joy found in union with your covenant partner. Just as heaven will be joy found in our union with Christ. So make sure you understand this. God is not against sexual intimacy. He's against perversions of it that would take it outside of that Christ-exalting context of marriage. The illustration often used is fire in the fireplace. Right? Fire in its proper context is a wonderful, warming, life-giving thing. If the fire is in the fireplace on a cold winter's night, it's a wonderful place for it to be. It does you good. But if you take fire outside of the fireplace, then it burns the house down. Second question. How have we broken this seventh commandment? I'm going to mention four ways that we may violate this commandment. There are many special issues and questions um, that we'll talk about tonight and Wednesday night, but here are four ways uh, that we may violate the seventh commandment. First, there is adultery, adultery proper, right? This is what our command clearly says, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, In 1631, printers of one edition of the King James Version of the Bible were fined 300 pounds. Uh, They were fined an entire year's worth of pay. Uh, Why were they fined that much? In their version of the Bible, they had accidentally left out the little word not in the seventh commandment. In their edition of the Bible, it read, you shall commit adultery. And that version of the King James Version of the Bible was often called the Wicked Bible. Uh, because of that error. But of course we might argue that that's exactly the command that we hear throughout our culture. You shall commit adultery. Because in media, spouses cheating on each other is commonplace. If you watch soap operas, you'd think everybody cheats. Everybody's an adulterer. Uh, People have bought into this idea that that attraction and falling into love with someone is something outside of your control. If you happen to fall head over heels for someone who's not your spouse, who can help it? Uh, It's not like you're in control of your heart. How different was the response of Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to lay with him? He responded to her, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is the true perspective of adultery. It is a great wickedness and sin against God. Husbands, wives, watch over yourselves. Make sure that your hearts only burn for one another. Don't allow your heart to get too intertwined with others who are not your spouse. And above all, learn self-control. Without self-control, without being able to speak to your emotions, without being able to speak to your heart and say, no, not this way, that way. You will be left in ruins and many others will be hurt as well. Second, there is fornication. Fornication. This is the more general word describing all sorts of physical intimacy outside the bonds of marriage. Uh, This is the the word that's in view when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. It's a general term. Flee all kinds of sexual immorality. 
if you're young, think about the day of your future wedding. Think about the precious promises that you will make before God to your future spouse. And think about the promise that that person will make to you. Before God, if He pleases to make this happen, there will be a person who will vow to take you as their spouse, to have and to hold from that day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. That person will be committing their life to you, their love to you, their all to you. Don't give your body to someone else. Be able to give yourself completely to that person who is committing their entire life to you. Maintain your purity now as a gift for your future spouse so that you can enjoy intimacy with them and with them alone. And also, since a marriage stands or falls on whether or not you take God seriously, because marriage vows are made before God, it is of utter importance that you marry a Christian, a God-fearer. If your spouse does not love God and have a high regard for God, then they're not going to take seriously the vows made before God. If you want to know that that you're going to be in a marriage where it's going to be strong and faithful and, and you're going to be committed to one another, it doesn't begin with their love for you. It begins with their love for God. So that on the day when you're driving them crazy, they're still committed to you because of God. Third, there is the sin of cohabitation. Cohabitation. Uh, This, of course, is living with a person before marrying them. It's become rampant in our culture. It's become almost normal. Typically, it includes fornication. Uh, That is, the couple is living together before marriage and they are sleeping together. But even if they weren't sleeping together, it still wouldn't be right. Uh, Ephesians 5 verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we're to live in such a way that even the charge of impurity won't stick to us. We're to be blameless. We're not to put ourselves in positions where someone can even accuse us of sexual immorality and it seems believable. We bear Christ's name. We are Christ's ambassadors. Don't live in a way that gives even an odor of immorality to the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Cohabitation is becoming the norm for our culture because Americans are moving to a lower view of marriage. But we as Christians must be different. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why we're here. I'm seeking to serve us by renewing your mind, by telling you what God says on this issue, so that you will live a transformed life, a different life, a life not conformed to the rest of the world. The rest of the world cohabitates, that's fine. For them, they're sinners, they're lost. We need to give to them with the gospel. But for us, we're to be different. 
We're to be distinct. For what it's worth, studies show that couples who cohabitate before they marry are significantly much more likely to divorce after they marry than those who don't cohabitate before marriage. Number four. Number four. We break the seventh commandment through lust. Through lust. This is where Jesus takes the seventh commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes it to the heart. You see, Christians, especially on this commandment, are prone to want to have line discussions. How far can me and my girlfriend go without crossing the line? How bad of a movie can I watch before I've crossed a line? I know I shouldn't look at at pornography, but what if I look at a website with women in their bathing suits? Maybe then I haven't crossed the line. Jesus breaks through all of those line discussions by going straight to motive. Why are you doing what you're doing? Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And ladies, it works the same way, vice versa. Adultery begins in the heart. Its roots are in the heart. If you look at a person with lustful intent, Jesus says you're already an adulterer. Now don't misunderstand. All sins are not equal in their heinousness. Just because you're an adulterer in the heart doesn't mean you should just say, oh well, I'm already an adulterer, so... I'll go on out and actually commit the act of adultery. No, the Bible does teach that some sins are worse than others in their vileness. And that actually committing the physical act of adultery is more wicked than just committing adultery in the heart. But all adultery begins in the heart. And we must aim at the heart if we are to be pure both inwardly and outwardly. I think it's helpful to reinforce here that God created man with all of man's aspects, including his sexual drive, and that God declared this creation very good. Uh, There is nothing sinful about the desire for intimacy. Jesus came to earth as a man, and he was a true man. Uh, He wasn't half a man. He was a man with sexual urges and all. Jesus himself would certainly have noticed the beauty of women. That did not make him sinful one bit. That did not make him in any way impure. It is not impure or sinful to find somebody attractive or to notice that somebody is beautiful or handsome. It is not impure or sinful, to long for intimacy within marriage, even if you're not yet married and you're you're just really wanting that day to come. Also, being tempted sexually is not a sin itself. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. So do not miss this. The sexual desires that you have are a gift from God, 
through which he is declaring his glory. Our sexual desires are meant to teach us a glorious lesson. That just as our bodies long for a loving partner, so our souls are to long for Christ as our bridegroom, the lover of our souls. Sexual desire is a holy thing. And when used rightly, it leads us to worship and it leads to Christ being honored. The issue is this. When the sexual urges come, or the temptations are right there, how do you deal with them? If you're married, do you funnel those desires into your marriage in a positive way that serves your spouse and brings happiness into your marriage? If you're unmarried, do you allow these urges to bring you to the place of prayer, asking God to give you a spouse with whom you can know the joys of intimacy? Or do you learn the spiritual lessons that these urges are meant to teach us? When do sexual desires become impure? It is when we take the good gift of sexual longing and we misuse it. It's when we take something for ourselves that is not ours to take. There's a reason Ephesians 5 verse 3 puts covetousness right beside impurity and sexual immorality. They're all connected. To be sexually immoral or impure is to desire for yourself what God has not rightfully given to you. Typically, it's the desire to make use of someone else's body, whether it be a real body or a picture of someone's body on a screen, and to use that body for your own pleasure. That woman is not your woman. She's not your wife. And yet you want to use her either in your mind or in reality as if she was. Or women, vice versa. You see, at its core, sexual sin is about covetousness. It is about wanting what is not rightfully ours. Someone has said that the first look isn't necessarily sinful. Not if you weren't seeking to lust. You weren't wanting to look at that person or that image. It just, it just happened to catch your eye. But it's the second look. And the third look. That is lust. That is, that is adultery in the heart. Interestingly, while I was putting together this message, um, I shared a post on Facebook asking how true followers of Christ can watch the uh, very popular HBO show called Game of Thrones. Uh, it's a show that regularly includes nudity. It regularly includes sexual immorality. Scenes that, in my, from my perspective, nobody should be able to watch. Nobody should watch. Yet very quickly, a whole bunch of people responded with reasons why they thought it was okay for them as Christians to watch these sexually explicit scenes. Uh, one argument was that watching these scenes was no different than watching a violent scene or a scene where people curse. But friends, I can watch a violent scene in a movie without committing violence myself. And I can hear somebody curse in a movie without repeating the curse word. But how long can you look at people 
simulating acts of sexual intimacy on a screen before you're lusting. And before your heart is involved in that sin. Uh, One person said, those scenes don't bother me. I can watch those scenes and not lust. My answer was, one, liar, liar, pants on fire. Or two, there's something wrong with you and you need to be checked out. We find ways to rationalize sin. We must be on guard here. God made us to be a people of sexual desire. Those kinds of movies and shows take that desire and steer it in an immoral direction. Those kinds of shows and movies hijack a good gift from God and lead us into sin. We must have self-control to say no to such things. We don't want to be like a bull led to the slaughter by our own desires. Perhaps the greatest attack on sexual purity in our culture has been the rise of instant access pornography. And because it's everywhere, seeking to reel you in, you have to learn to be the kind of fish that can swim right on past the bait. If you jump at that bait, you will be caught. Do you know how to swim past that bait? Um, Love Jesus more? (laughs) Um, Be so full of satisfaction in Christ and in His love and in His causes and in His service and in His gifts that you don't need what that website is offering to you? We need to recognize that viewing pornography is taking taking part in prostitution. I first heard Russell Moore say that, and it's right. Uh, That's what the pornography industry is, an industry using people's bodies for money. And whether or not you're the one spending the money, viewing pornography makes you complicit in prostitution. It's that serious. We also need to recognize that pornography is addictive in nature. Numerous studies over the last two decades have shown that pornography is akin to crack cocaine. It rewires the brain. Uh, Kids, teens, when your parents make certain shows off limits, or when they put filters on your computers, or when they make you skip certain scenes in movies, they are not trying to make life hard for you. They are loving you. They are seeking to protect you from the drug of pornography just like they would protect you from other things that will do you harm. Learn from them. When they're no longer there to protect you, you must also have the self-control to say no to those things just like you would illegal drugs or anything else that can do you real harm. Remember the Odyssey, the ancient Greek epic? And how the, the sirens would enchant people with their beautiful voices. And as ships would turn to follow their voices, seduced by the beauty of their song, suddenly the ships would be lured into a trap. They would be lured into crashing against the rocks, leading to their deaths. Friends, when the song of sexual temptation is playing, we have to learn how to plug our ears and flee. There are temptations that we're called to fight. 
There are temptations where the Bible says, put up your arms and, 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 and duke it out and fight that temptation. It's interesting when it comes to this temptation, the teaching of the Bible is clear over and over and over again. You flee. You run. This temptation will use your own natural body and its good desires against you to do you harm. I love this little stanza. I got this from Alistair Begg. I think I put it in the outline. It says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Here's what I take from that. Who we are begins with our thought lives. Everything proceeds from who we are in our thoughts and inward selves. Everything proceeds from what we entertain in our hearts. What do you mull over? What do you spend your time thinking about and considering? Thoughts reap actions. Every time you choose to commit an act of sexual immorality, whatever it is, it becomes a little easier than next time. So those actions begin to to reap habits. Watching those scenes in those movies don't bother you so much once you've already seen them a hundred times before. Lust may not seem like such a big deal if you've been diving into that pigsty for decades. You've gotten used to the mud and the stink. The smell is worn off. Actions turn into habits and habits shape character and character reap a destiny. So start at the beginning with what you allow into your heart and into your mind. Follow Job's example and make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look at a person lustfully. I wonder if you would make that covenant this morning. I make a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a maiden, Job said. I need to tell you something else. You already know this. We're all guilty of the seventh commandment. We're all guilty of failing to treasure marriage as we ought. And we're all guilty of committing acts of sexual immorality. But we sit here with all of our limbs and both our eyes and a heart that is engaged in shameful dark thoughts. Even though Jesus said to cut off your hands, pluck out your eyes if it will keep you from leading into sexual immorality. God sees right into the core of who we are. Our sin is offensive, and we are deserving of hell. But praise God, sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. It is not. God, in His mercy, even when we were unlovable, has loved us. He has sent His Son, Jesus, to, be, to live the perfect life we have failed to live. Jesus fulfilled the seventh commandment for us over and over again. He was pure in heart. He was pure in His intentions. He was pure in the way He looked upon others. More than that, Jesus is faithful as a bridegroom to His bride. He is always loyal to His bride. Always committed to His people and their welfare. For his bride, Jesus went to the cross and he took the punishment she deserved for all of her sexual immorality. He took the judgment for her so that she could be declared clean. Listen carefully to this. 
Here it is if you haven't heard it before. When we believe on Jesus, not only are all our sexual sins washed away, past, present, and future, forever gone, but Jesus gives us a new ability to truly love and to pursue purity for His name's sake. Before salvation, we were slaves to sin. Before salvation, we could not help but sin. But in Christ, the shackles have been broken. You really can, Christian, learn self-control. You really can have eyes for only your spouse. Young people, you really can make it to your wedding night pure, ready to give yourself in happy celebration and intimacy to the partner God has brought into your life. In Jesus Christ, what we once were incapable of doing because we were slaves to sin, we can now really do. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We will never be perfect in this life. But that day is coming too. Uh, On that day, we will be united with our Savior in heaven itself, and we will experience what all marriage and all intimacy has always been pointing to, an intimacy and joy beyond expression, the joys of paradise as we live in Christ's love forever. So Mount Hermon, let us find forgiveness. Let us find salvation. Let us find love and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.